I'm really interested in this idea that this new culture is emerging and may be much more powerful and much more substantial than we think it is at the moment. So, um, you know, there's this idea that as values change, because the old values appear so dominant and you see them reflected in advertising and politics and all the rest of it, then you can feel overwhelmed and like, oh, we're a tiny minority, you know, people who believe in values like universalism and ecological balance and all the, all the rest of it. But actually, what if what we're seeing at the moment with Trump and, and you know, all the craziness that's out there is the kind of final lash of the tail rather than the beginning of something new this is the old order clinging on because it recognizes that something fundamental is changing you're listening to the spaceship earth podcast with me dan burgess uh welcome to the show hope this finds you well um thanks for tuning in thanks for listening this is episode 21 uh, if you're new to the Spaceship Earth podcast, welcome. And if you've been listening a few times before, then massive gratitude for your continued support of the show. Uh, the Spaceship Earth really is um, conversations, explorations uh, from or with people that are exploring a more sort of considered, um, conscious, planetary way of living Um of uh, deeper connections to uh, the self, to community, and to the marvelous natural world around us, uh, the spaceship Earth that's uh, flying right now, hurtling through space. Um, yeah, and I, I talk to all kinds of folks, um, activists, designers, artists, writers, social entrepreneurs, uh, yeah, you name it, it's all there healers, storytellers, and occasionally I talk to myself. In fact, I've talked to myself a few times um, just because it's my own podcast. So if I can't talk to myself on my own podcast, when can you talk to yourself? Um, but mostly it's me talking to other people. So welcome to the show. This is episode 21. Um this episode is a conversation I had last month with uh, a marvellous man called James Turner. James Turner is a co-founder of a creative collective called Glimpse, which is what you're going to hear all about. So I won't go into too much detail, but you can find them through the links in the show notes. Uh, but James is someone I have um, been watching and connecting and admiring and um yeah, and getting involved with some of his stuff as well over the last few years. Um, he's the former um, communications director at Greenpeace UK and um, started Glimpse as an experiment, as all good things do start as experiments, um, probably two, th maybe three years back. Uh, it's now evolved to his full-time um, gig, and that's what we're going to explore. This is also the first, the first conversation I've had in my studio at the bottom of my garden. Um, which is quite interesting, isn't it? It's, tw it's taken, yes, 21 episodes to actually talk to someone in my own space. Um, so anyway, I'm not going to drivel on too long here. Um, this is a conversation, I think, again, about someone that is um, really imagining a more beautiful world and is playing with all the kind of tips and tricks and tools and skills and networks he has at play to do just that. And that's what Glimpse is all about, really. It's giving, uh, it's uh, building a network of co-creators who are using their creativity and their networks and their energy to respond to briefs, challenges 
that we face around a whole plethora of issues from um, environmental issues to social issues to all kinds of uh, stuff that's coming our way. But to use that creative potential we have to design interventions, creative experiments, culture hacks, all kinds of stuff that, that help us see the world slightly different and see these challenges in a way that actually may uh, leaders to see beauty in the possibility that faces us and optimism and actually all of these gnarly shit things that are going on are invitations to imagine and co-create something way more awesome. So I like that. Uh, I like James a lot. I've got a lot of time and respect for what he's up to and uh, with his, uh, his co-founder Zach and the whole network they have that they're building. So I'm going to stop rambling here. Let's get straight into episode 21. This is uh, the Spaceship Earth podcast with James Turner from Glimpse. James, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. Um, Ooh, so where should we start? How are you? How are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm fine, thank yeah. you. We just went for a very nice walk. Yeah. Um, sorry your dog couldn't make it. <laughs> yeah. I know, actually. I don't know if I should let her out of the... Uh, let the hound out. But I think she'll be right. She'll be right for another hour. If I let her in here now, it will be um, it'll be carnage. I said a chicken yesterday on yesterday's episode. So I think <laughs> we could do without the dog. Um, so I want to give the, um, the listeners a bit of context on you. Um um, I, I, I always have a little bit of a troll, but I've, I've uh, seen you described as a radical optimist, um, mm. at, at least at one point. <laughs> um, but um, can you just give us a bit of a bit of context to like your, I guess your journey really to, to now? I mean, we'll get into all the, you know, what's going on right now, but a little bit of background so people can understand... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose there's always this sort of the, the on paper side and then there's yeah. what was going on behind the scenes. So I'll, I'll try and give you a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, my background, I suppose, was originally in journalism. I started yeah. off after university working at the BBC and I was a broadcast journalist and went out, did interviews and actually ended up in Newcastle where they made me read the news on air because they thought I sounded like a posh. On proper TV? Southern newsreader. <laughs> no, on radio. On radio. On radio. But I didn't nice. know how to say any of the place names. So I got in loads of trouble. Chesterly Street, I can now do, if anyone's <laughs> listening. Um, so from there, I then got a job at the Jonathan Dimbleby program, which was a political TV show on ITV, back mm. in the day when ITV did a bit of politics. And it just became very clear to me, kind of outside of work, that climate change in particular was this just hulking great issue, and it wasn't getting enough airtime. And when it did, certainly on the Dimbleby program, we would always put up a climate skeptic alongside a sort of starred climate scientist from Queen Mary or whatever. It was just humiliating. When was this? When was this? This was in two thousand and four, okay. two thousand and five. And were you um, were you at that? Were you already? fairly activist then well how was how was yeah why, so why this was is this is where the non on paper bit comes All right. in uh i had and you know had the privilege of going to the burning man festival mm. um in the year 2001 which was quite early for that festival it's like a number of years ago now um a friend of mine ago. yeah 18 mm. years ago a friend of mine came back she'd been to it the year before and she said you've got to come it's absolutely out of this world is unlike anything you've ever seen before so long story short i took the plunge saved up some money went the next year and met a group of people out there who were not living a kind of alternative lifestyle that was about sacrifice and hemp and 
yogurt and all those cliches. It was nothing about wrong with hemp nothing wrong with but, hemp right. or yogurt. Um, <laughs> Find out <what> you mean. <laughs> uh, it was about solar panels and it was about buses that ran off recycled vegetable oil. And it was about great music and being out on the coast and surfing and eating delicious organic food and, you know, being in community with each other and all this good stuff. And it just sparked this idea that, like, hang on a second, maybe, you know, yes, climate change is a problem, but maybe the, the solutions to it could be better than what we have now. Um, and that was really the germ of it. That was that was what got me interested both in climate change the environment but also alternative ways of, of thinking and living so i came back to the uk and i was on this quite traditional career trajectory you know politics journalism you know heading i suppose for the establishment worked with a dimbleby you know one of the greatest names in broadcasting um, but i just felt like there, i wanted to advocate for this it didn't make sense to me to be always putting these two spokespeople on the debate and i wanted to go out and fight for it so as one of the bits of research I did for a program, I met some people from Greenpeace. Uh, and you know when you meet someone from your tribe, you just click and you're like, oh yeah, that this, this wouldn't feel like work, this would feel like something different. And so asked them whether or not there was any jobs going. Two weeks later, they got in touch. Long story short, I applied for it and got it. Um, and then I'll just tell you this little story yeah, if, yeah, it's, yeah. if it's relevant. But my first week at Greenpeace, there was a big action going on against the nuclear weapons base in Faslane up in Scotland. Um, and for those of you, I won't give too much away, but for people who don't know, Greenpeace plan their actions very thoroughly. And I think that's fair to say. Um, they are very safety conscious and all the rest of it. But they're also very security conscious. And on my first day at work, my boss at the time uh, gestured me into the warehouse, which is at the back of the Greenpeace office in London. Uh, we stood by a transistor radio, which he'd put on a deliberately fuzzy channel and turned it up. And he leant in and started giving me details of what my job would be on the day. And I was saying, are you serious? Like, are you actually doing this? Like we're in a spy novel. And obviously I didn't say this because it was my first day. But it just I just blew my socks off thinking this is my job now to turn up transistor radios and try and hide from like police microphones or something so um you know then the action itself was really I nearly got arrested in my third day it was very very exciting um and long story short I worked my way up to a communications director at Greenpeace I was there for 10 years absolutely loved it and you know got to engage my passion at work all the time which is the dream um Ended up doing the Save the Arctic campaign, which was the big international campaign to keep oil companies out of the melting Arctic. And through that process, met a lot of people from the creative industries, especially advertising, graphic design, sort of PR, who would approach me and say, can we do something with Greenpeace? We really love what you do. And sometimes you thought, oh, then maybe that's because they want to win an award or because it'll look good on their CV. But most of the time, you know, you look someone in the eyes and you can tell if they care. And it was very clear that they were not getting what they needed from their job. Um, and so it kind of struck me that there was an opportunity there. Um, so that's kind of jumping forward a little bit and I, into talking about Glimpse. But I think that point about, you know, California and, and these alternative lifestyles were the real driver. A lot of people at Greenpeace were there because... They lived near a creek or a river when they were younger and it got polluted by an oil spill or something and that turned them onto activism and that they were angry and they wanted to right the injustices of the world. That was never me. Um, I could see the injustice and, you know, I thought that was wrong, but I was always there to think about 
promoting the new. And I, I felt that there was something just under the surface that if only people had access to, if only people could start to perceive, it could be much better than what we have now. And that was, that's kind of driven my philosophy all the way through. And so that, <clears throat> that um, coming through that 10 years then, and then, and then having that, um, that new insight, I guess, or that way of, of thinking about the, particularly the creative communities. Um, and so what did, what did that, so what happened next? Because I guess that's, so you felt that, that that was now a time to move forward from Greenpeace. Was it, is it what, you didn't actually think, how do I bring, can I bring that in more into, inwards into the organisation? Or it was just a time for you to, to step forward and do something completely different? There's a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I mean, I should say that Greenpeace is a very creative organisation. Yeah. It's known for it, and it does work very effectively with external people. Um, but it didn't seem to be as a matter of course that creativity was at the heart of all the campaigns. Mm. And I was looking at, we did a, a campaign against Lego, which had a, a partnership with Shell. Uh, with My son uh, created a bit of content. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, what was it's that? on YouTube. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. I'll show it to you later. Completely nuts. Yeah. Some kind of weird Lego, <laughs> insane Lego character did stop motion, like digging for oil, digging for oil. That's what he's talking about. It's weird. Anyway, anyway I digress. But that's a great example <laughs> yeah. because it was a campaign to get Lego to split its corporate partnership with Shell. Mm. And we encouraged people around the UK to send in videos like that. We also made a video of a kind of Lego, it's called a diorama, like a beautiful, like beautifully made Lego world, slowly filling up with oil mm. we made it with an agency called don't panic based in london it was hugely successful it got like seven million views in a couple of weeks and almost single-handedly persuaded lego to ditch this hundred year partnership with shell oil um and it just struck me that like well hang on a second here like yeah the direct actions and the you know climbing on buildings is, is hugely important but this is a massively powerful thing here. Mm. If you can capture people's imagination and if you can engage the same sort of creative talent that is currently working on big brands and put it to the purpose of social change or environmental change, what could we achieve here? Mm. So it's more a question of thinking, could we push this further? Yeah. And what would it look like to build an organization from the ground up that had creativity and change making at its core? Yeah. And... Uh... And I wanted to, I guess cats comes to mind <laughs> for me anyway, at least maybe that's not the, 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 the journey, but it feels like that was a, that was a quite a, that was quite a big part of the. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, cats, it was our first real campaign as an organization. Mm. Um, and that came out of a hack day. So we call it hack day. What really happened was I got together about 25 friends who, either had come to me at Greenpeace or I knew outside of work, mm. but who didn't work in charities, nothing to do with anything to do with environmentalism or anything like that. Um, and we wrote a creative brief. And the idea was what would happen if you wrote a creative brief, not for a client, not for an NGO, but based on an issue that matters, that doesn't get enough coverage. Um, and the first one we did was on consumerism because I personally think that consumerism is very underserved by the charity world. No one wants to touch it. But it is the thing that drives not only resource extraction and, you know, all these environmental harms, but so much of our identity that, that the, the way that young people ground themselves in the world is based on brands and, and what they consume. So we wrote this very open creative brief, which said, imagine a world where we valued people and experiences more than stuff we could buy in the shops. 
And that's the kind of glimpse philosophy. We called it glimpse to nah, see if that we could... work. Never work. <laughs> <laughs> I want to buy stuff in the shops. <laughs> well, yeah. it's easy, isn't it? Um, and that was the point. You know, it, it's something that we all know to be true, but the culture out there doesn't reflect it. It's it nowhere in the in the world that you often see. Actually, it's the people you love, and it's the stuff you can do for free in nature that will give you lasting fulfillment, and will make you happy, and will make you healthy, and all the rest of it. So. Uh, we broke off into groups to take this on as a challenge. And one of the ideas was, well, if advertising is the source of so much of this messaging, what if we ran a Kickstarter campaign to replace a load of adverts somewhere with something really different? The idea was then to do it in a tube station because it's very contained and, and that's you're bombarded with ads. Um, and then this was the, the brilliant part. And I can say it's brilliant because I wasn't involved in the team. Um, instead of putting pictures of families going camping or beautiful trees or things that represent nature they thought well we're gonna to have to crowdfund for this so what's the one number one thing that the internet will go nuts for um if if we're going to replace a load of adverts with it um and when you frame the question that way then the answer was relatively simple and it was cats <laughs> yes cats and the internet um and so for those i mean i'll, I'll link to the stuff in the show notes the the films and all the campaign stuff but just give us a sense of like um yeah like what, what actually how the campaign unfolded what actually happened so we ran a kickstarter campaign to replace all the tube adverts in a tube station with pictures of cats i mean that's that's the long and the short of it um it was unbranded but uh, the team came up with this acronym the citizens advertising takeover service or cats for short um and we ended up borrowing the images from the calendar of Cats Protection, which is a UK cats charity, but it was nothing to do with them. Um, we raised £25,000 on Kickstarter, and by that September, so about four or five months later, we designed all these posters to go in Clapham Common Tube Station. And if you can imagine walking into the tube, the posters on your right and left, just pure white backgrounds, just with big pictures of cats on them. We had the turnstiles as well, with cats on, which we call cat flaps, which you could walk through. And then as you went down the escalators, 58 of the escalator posters, all of the big posters on the way to the platform, and we didn't get the platform because they're hideously expensive. Yeah. But the idea was that it was just a kind of shock and awe, cat shock and awe in a, in a tube station. And when people walked into it, you could see them almost starting backwards with kind of confusion and shock because you're so used to seeing a brand at the end of it or this is brought to you by Whiskers. The idea that someone would do this for no obvious reason was very, very interesting. And it was just really fun. Kids came down to take photos of themselves with the cats. Um, tourists had to be ushered to the side of the tube platforms so commuters could get to work. And it sort of turned the tube station into a sort of carnival or at least changed that relationship with the space. Yeah. And it did... For a lot of people, it was just about cute cats and it was a bit silly. But a lot of people said, I'd never thought about the extent to which our public spaces are dominated by images that make me feel inadequate or make me feel slightly like I don't have enough. And if you think about the psychological impact of that every single day, yeah. you're not beautiful enough, you don't have enough money, or if you just bought this, you'd feel better. It might not be cats that we'd re replace it with, but it definitely wouldn't be insurance adverts. Mm. So... There was something quite radical in it, and it was in quite a fun. And it run. went off, didn't it? It got a lot of got a lot of interest. It got a lot of interest. Yeah, it did. I always say that you know I worked for Greenpeace for ten years. Cats was the most successful in media terms yeah. of any project I've ever worked on. It got a three billion 
people media reach yeah. and it and the advertising value equivalent although that's a silly figure yeah. uh, was 52 million pounds wow um so i was on cnn for about six minutes talking about the level of advertising yeah. and consumerism yeah, i was yeah. like putting in messages about consumerism yeah, yeah. just sneaking it in there um because it gave media a reason to talk about you know cats on the tube it's very silly but it's got a serious message yeah. behind it and whose cat got really famous then because i remember on the i remember on the kickstarter you could you could uh, you could buy there was one uh, there was one level that you could buy and you could get a picture of your cat on. Yeah, i did so consider it for my for my cat buck but i i, I went for the, the the cheaper backing for the t-shirt but um there, did someone get a really famous there were actually two rewards related to getting your cat on the poster yeah. if you gave us a hundred pounds yeah then your cat was on one of the posters but it was really small all oh, right so we had the final poster which had loads of little pictures of cats like four by three inches that kind of thing but if you paid two grand yeah. we would give you a whole post so no one paid the two grand right. but a guy from america called randy yeah. um paid to have his cat <clears throat> and then flew over from virginia <laughs> in the u.s to see his cat and showed up he was really lovely uh slightly he was lovely lovely guy and he walked down and then came back up and he was like yeah um i couldn't really find my cat apart from at the end is am i missing one of the posters <laughs> <laughs> we were like oh no 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 it's not going to be a whole poster. You've just got one of the little bits. Um, so he slightly had to hide his disappointed <laughs> face. He did. So Randy's cat didn't go on to sort of star in anything else. Then <laughs> after sort of fifty million quid's worth of media exposure. No, no. But he did. He did BBC London and like Agency Brilliant. France Press Amazing. that morning. So it was a good good day for yeah. Randy. Yeah. And so that really, I mean, because that that was really, I guess, the birth of Glimpse then, really officially, right? And yeah, so absolutely. Tell, so tell us about tell tell us about Glimpse and. Well, I mean, it, it was, as I say, very experimental at that point. Mm. But I think what that proved was both what happens when you get creative people in a room working on something other than shampoo and handbags, yeah. but also what could happen in terms of the public reaction to more playful, um, more kind of engaging messaging. Um, so we thought, well, what's next? What could we do after that? I was still at Greenpeace soon after I left Greenpeace to join the Syria campaign, which was um, which is a humanitarian organization working with civilian groups in Syria. So mm. I was still doing this off the side of my desk. Mm. Um, and at that time, Zach, my co-founder and business partner, joined me. He was also working in commercial PR at the time. Um, and we thought, well, what could we do to sort of turn this into a proper organization? So the way that Glimpse has worked is we do these hack days where we get people together to come up with ideas. And we were planning the next one um, and the thought was to do something for Black Friday, another big kind of silly day in mm -hmm. the consumerism calendar. Um, and I'd been doing some work with Help Refugees, this really small grassroots refugees charity. Um, and we were just thinking, well, a little bit like cats, what if a shop didn't function like a shop and we just took it over and did something different with it? what would it do? Well, maybe it wouldn't sell anything that you could buy and maybe it would sell things. If it was going to sell anything, maybe it would sell things for people you were never going to meet. And then it just, two things came together because the other the other connection here was that Help Refugees had an Amazon wish list where you could buy things like tracksuit bottoms and hoodies and warm blankets for refugees, which they would then deliver to Calais. Yeah. And I thought, that well, that's really smart. I didn't know that loads of charities do that. Not that they're not. Sure. <laughs> it was a really intelligent move. Yeah. But I thought, well, why not bring that into the real world and open a shop where you can actually buy these items, but instead of taking them home with you, they go to someone who really needs them. So that was the big next phase of Glimpse mm. was 
how can we assemble a team to make this happen? And that's really different from a tube ad campaign where, you know, it's graphic designers and there's a few people involved. To open a shop and an online retail outlet, we ended up working with 60 volunteers from within this network. Um, a lot of them had come through Cats and, and other marketing we'd done. Um, and everyone from, you know, Burberry retail stylists who gave us a day to, you know, people like Mike, who has done so much of our design work for us, just people working really late nights and weekends to make this thing happen. Mm. Um, so we opened the store in 2017 in on Black Friday. In Soho, right? In Soho, yeah, yeah in central Prime, London. Prime uh, location. Yeah, we were donated the space. It was a, It's a really cute little corner store, um, but we designed it with a nod to the Apple store. So it had a long wooden table down the middle of it. We had beautiful icons on the wall. The idea was that when you walked into it, it felt more like a fashion boutique than a charity shop. Um, and again, challenging people's perceptions of what you expect from a kind of refugee charity in, in general. Um, and along the table, we had different items to represent the different stages in a refugee's journey. So starting with arrival, which was things like emergency blankets. We had hot soup, you know kids coats like children's coats which are often the first thing they will hand out when they get off the dinghies and in the mediterranean the second stage was called shelter which was about camp food tents sleeping bags that kind of thing and then the final part of the table is the table was only two or three meters long mm. the final part was called the future uh, and that was educational materials like keys to a home we had pots and pans and cooking sets um and nappies and, and stuff like that and it was just you know, people walked into that shop and picked up a packet of nappies and thought, yeah, you would actually need these if you were in a refugee camp and you had a two year old. And it was that sort of physicality, the tangible items that made such a difference. People were in tears picking up a kid's school bag. Um, and there were pictures of, um, you know, refugees and, and sort of. Uh, incredible imagery around the store, but it was really the items themselves that, that made the difference. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, I think we had a target of, I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about the money it raised because for me, it's much more important about those individual interactions. I think 10,000 people shopped in the store, many of whom had never given money to any charity, let alone a refugee charity. So what we are seeing this is as a cultural intervention, as much as a fundraising scheme, making compassion essentially more accessible more familiar more easily gra graspable for people who go shopping at the weekends who are not on the internet searching guardian news stories about you know important humanitarian crises but are in forever 21 and footlocker that's i think where we need to get some of this stuff mm. is to bring it into the mainstream just make it easier you know help refugees have this brilliant phrase which is we make it easier for people to help others and that's kind of that's kind of where we where we were getting mm. to but it did i mean you, but you did i mean you know let's talk about numbers slightly but you did sell a lot right you, you, you i mean you generated I mean, it was yeah the, so the first year we generated three quarters of a million yeah, pounds amazing. um and that was <laughs> Uh, the goal was, I think, 60,000. So that was that was pretty surprising. Yeah. <laughs> um, and after that, I think that was the moment at which we thought, okay, it's time to quit our jobs. Um, there still wasn't any money coming in, you know, to pay salaries or anything like that. But we thought, Zach and I thought, this is so important, this is so meaningful to us that it's worth taking the risk. Mm. Um, and so obviously Choose Love brought a lot of attention. Um, quite a few charities got in touch, different organizations and wanted to work with us. So we then had this collective of about 2000 people 
plus a load of large charities saying can you bring a bit of that creativity to what we're doing and that's what we've been doing over the course of this year mm. and just start, i mean before we uh move on from choose love but you repeated it again didn't you this last year and you did new york as well which was yeah that's was, right and what was that how was new york what, what was that all about? how did that work and yeah i mean the first that? thing to say is that this was the first major kind of intervention for help refugees in new york they don't have a presence in the u.s um and so it was really interesting it was challenging for that reason you know you don't have a big supporter base getting the volunteers to, to work in the shop was more difficult or everyone who worked yeah. in the store we tried we tried to launch good for nothing in new york right and it was the hardest place ever and i'm sure it's the fact because it was like doing stuff for nothing in the land of the dollar <laughs> you know you go people go i really want to start a chapter and you go yeah but you and they go like is and how much does it you know how much do you like charge me? and it was like well no it's like you know you do it for nothing that's that's the point it's yeah. like and i think that's <clears throat> my sense is that's Yes, it's culturally quite hard. I think that's true. And I think even the, you know, within the creative industries there, mm. the idea of using your skills for good, I think and this is a big generalization, yeah. but like the idea of volunteering yes. um, is more acceptable here. Whereas in the US, you might give money to charity, mm. but the work you do is for financial reward. Mm. Having said that, we worked with some incredible volunteers sure. in New York who made it happen. Yeah. And the great thing was... We worked with a small glimpse team there who work at an events company who absolutely stepped up. The whole company did loads of, <coughs> excuse me, volunteering work on it. But in terms of the shop uh, assistants, the people who worked in the store, we, we found through one of the glimpse members, Jess, who was on the NYU uh, Refugee Solidarity Program. So suddenly she sent an email out and we suddenly had like hundreds of NYU students down there who are, I don't know how much you know about that university, but essentially the best and brightest future political leaders all coming in through that Choose Love experience and getting that, firstly, the magic of Help Refugees because they're an incredible organization. But also that was one of their first interactions with this issue was meeting ordinary New Yorkers and seeing just how generous and how engaged people are. So there's all these interesting, you know, we've talked about this before, these spin-off benefits when you start these things of thinking like there's 100 NYU students who suddenly now are really committed to refugees, know about Glimpse, but also feel like a little bit more optimistic about the chances of fixing this problem what are the long-term impacts of that? And I think that's one of the things we try and do with Glimpse is to not see change as a as a line, as a sort of linear progression that you can predict to these different bits. Is Let's just do things with the right intention and believe that they're going to spin off in interesting ways in the future. Because I think that's one of the mistakes that we make so often in the NGO world is if you can't measure the results within two or three years, you're not really doing anything interesting. You're not, you're not doing enough. Whereas like with cats... Yes, it was a silly project, but who knows whether or not a young person would have walked past that and thought, you know what, maybe advertising is a bit rubbish. And I was 50-50 about that and a different A-level and I'm going to do, you know, I think that is just as significant as mm. we lobbied this particular politician this year for a change in policy. Because that cultural change, that kind of hearts and minds stuff is the long-lasting, profound shifts that we need at this point. Mm. And it's, I love all that, because, yeah, I've, I've struggled a lot, you know, many times in, you know, that, you know, uh, defining impacts, measuring them, justifying them, um, getting caught up in kind of uh, output versus anything else, you know, and what does something, you know, what happened with the thing and what was the thing. And, and, and you know, and of course, the commercial world is obsessed with that as well. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, how... 
we're sort of in this time now where it, it i i do find this stuff of like um you know do we need yeah can we always do we always have to sort of see our impact or do we always have to sort of you know feel that it's you know i did this and this happened or can we be more can we evolve more to knowing that you know it's it's another it's another pulse in the system you know it's another uh piece of energy that is that is out there that, that like you say is going to bump into different people you know who are at different stages of their journey and what you know what yeah what is the long tail of this stuff because you know it can impact someone now like you say a young someone younger who 10 years down the line does something that has enormous shifts you know what i mean i, I know it's a you know that that way of thinking it was always bumping up against this kind of still i think which we're in in an industrial growth society of you know just predict everything measure everything rationalize logic you know no room for for uh uncertainty or also just a sort of willingness to kind of see that actually there's va there's all kinds of value maybe in these things that we that we can't see or measure or you know such an interesting space and difficult because it's like it is difficult because i'm also conflicted about it mm. um if you look at climate change which i suppose is the defining issue for me mm. i spent a lot of my time thinking we need to target the fossil fuel companies call them out and get tougher laws that will reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and as times developed and as my thinking's developed and whether it's just like I, you can't do that for that long it's exhausting mm. i'm now thinking a lot more about how might we influence people's outlook on the world their kind of inner journey their consciousness and is this actually this climate change thing a sort of symptom of a, a collective malaise that we're in and therefore could the solutions to it look more like a kind of psychological intervention yeah, right. than uh, a technical intervention yeah now the difficulty that with that is people are like yeah that's all very well but shell's drilling for oil in the arctic and you know trump's got his man in the epa pulling all the strings for the oil companies um and it takes an awful lot of courage to say i'm going to turn away from that mm. Um, and focus my energies on something that doesn't look anything like fossil fuel, you know, divestment or any of these technical levers. And I'm going to devote my life to working with young people or um, helping people with mental health problems, because I believe that that in itself is something that is going to, you know, contribute to the greater you know progress that we're in of which climate change is just one issue mm. you know i don't think you can isolate it mm. as it's not like if we get loads of renewable energy and wind turbines and then it'll all be fixed no. because we need to leave all sorts of other stuff behind but it is a challenge for me and i i am still unsure about it i wish i could say i've seen the light and i've had an epiphany yeah because i'm i've got feet in both camps yeah um i think again it's you need both but my my fear is that by isolating it as a problem that's out there. Look at it another way. By isolating it as evil fossil fuel companies and, and rich tycoons, we don't take a kind of collective responsibility for it. And that's not about guilt. That's not about saying, you know, you're the problem. But it's about externalizing that when actually the work for all of us is to start with ourselves and to think about how do we as a society get over this malaise this this kind of ennui that we're all that we're all facing at the moment yeah you know i i was um <clears throat> exactly I'm, I'm there i'm with you i was also just at the same time there's the madness of the world isn't it because i was i was 
I was a uh, uh, pond. I was what? What do you do on LinkedIn? Do you scroll LinkedIn? Maybe I do scroll. Maybe I was scrolling on LinkedIn. God, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Like, what's going on? But I saw this post about Instagram. Uh, you know, launching this new buy me button or something. You know, where you can like. Um, and it was a post by someone who worked in some agency, some sort of you know retail digital marketing thing, just saying like. This is the biggest breakthrough in retail. You know, this is like the, this is going to transform the way we buy. You know, you can look at something on Instagram and you can immediately click to buy it because actually the problem before was you had to jump through, you know, a couple of uh, loops that took you off the, off the Instagram and it was a bit of a clunky kind of experience. I mean, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, it took at least an extra two minutes of your life to buy this thing. But, um, and so, so it's like, so on one hand, you know, and it was like, I was just like, and I, you know, I wanted, I actually, I didn't because I'm just, I, I've sort of given up on ranting on people's blog posts and stuff. But a bit of me that wanted to say, this is ridiculous. You know, it's sort of like, if that's, a, you know, it's a breakthrough in just bringing even more of our, you know, living planet down. Let's just consume, let's consume the arse out of it as we are. And, but it's this removal, I think, again, so you so say you have on one hand exactly that and then. The other hand, this kind of shininess and possibility of of progress. Well, commas I mean, that's you know, that's the thing that we talk about a lot. A glimpse is yeah. it, when we look back and think we use the best creative talent of our generation mm. to develop that button on Instagram yeah. and the most technical talent yeah. as well. And we did so so unthinkingly as if well this is obviously that's just the way of the world that really smart creative people go and sell stuff that's destroying the planet and each other mm. and that there really isn't it would be lovely if there was an alternative but, but there isn't um and it just feels like one of the great tragedies of our time that we have like a, a sort of talent vacuum sucking it up towards all these ad agencies and all these brands when imagine if you could use an ounce of that creative talent mm. on some of the issues that really matter. Mm. And I think that is starting to happen, not through, we don't have the system for it yet, but you're starting to see that energy bursting out. And that's what's happening with Good For Nothing. It's what's mm. happening with Glimpse. Mm. It's just all we're doing is trying to catch a little bit of it, but that is waiting to happen. And I think, you know, much as I admire and, and respect environmental charities and all sorts of change-making organizations, they're not the persuaders. They're not the brilliant communicators who can tell stories that will change the way you think and act in the world. All those people are working in ad agencies. Mm. So let's get them involved and let's see what happens when you try and make a whatever, you know, low carbon, organic, whatever you want to say, that lifestyle and that belief system as attractive as buying a new pair of Nike trainers every three months. Because, you know, you can talk about how these lifestyles are inaccessible and they're, you know, for the, the elite. But we've actually managed to get to a space where you can sell people with very little money, £120 pair of trainers very regularly. Mm. This is not like, there is a lot of absurdity going on already. How can we recalibrate the system? Yeah. I saw a, I saw a, um, something you you you'd written which really connected with me was uh can we imagine a world where i think you said we're growing your own salad is as popular and desirable as cultivating your instagram feed <laughs> which uh which is something i often dwell on and uh uh and it's funny isn't it because that's it, it is it's um i'm not i'm not i'm not suggesting everyone grows salad although that would i believe be absolutely revolutionary and transformational but um but there is something about um 
you know, and, and you can really feel it, particularly, I think, with social technologies at the moment and that, that pressure and tension that people are feeling through this always connected, you know, projecting different, you know, maybe sort of unsure of who or it is we're actually projecting ourselves out into the world. Um, the kind of the, 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 the form of addiction, addictive behavior that a lot of this stuff is driving and actually what is what is at the heart you know is it this kind of lack of connection that's kind of sitting deeply as the, as really what's driving this kind of behavior but when you when it f seems to me when people are able to experience something that is more experiential that is involved you know that stirs something within that enables them to kind of connect to something maybe slightly bigger than all of this stuff you know, it's powerful. And, and that's often where I'm sort of thinking like, you know, you see it with you with Glimpse, you know, it's, it's something we've seen a lot with Good For Nothing, you know, and that's obviously just one dimension of it, of bringing people together to co-create, to explore ideas. And it's super powerful. I, I guess I'm interested in, one of the things is how does that play out? How does that play out into more mass culture? You know, how do we, how, how you know, can we see ways where um, there are more, opportunities for people to actually turn these things off and to, to look at each other to get outside i don't know do you know what i mean it's like does that come through communication or what what else might be what are the other things actually that maybe are offering a, a different way of reconnecting people do, do you know what i mean it's like yeah absolutely i mean sometimes what we say about these glimpse hack days is that we think we set them up in order to come up with loads of great ideas and to do the projects and then we get there and it's just like oh no it's just about these people and being in a space with a shared intention and a good vibe and a good spirit. And people leave with their eyes shining because they've enjoyed it so much. And then you get to the end of the day and think, that's what this is really about. Yeah. This is a Saturday where you're not walking around on your own or listening to your headphones, but you get to come and be together in community and do something meaningful and purposeful. And that's been really so, so powerful for us. So I think then the question of how you spread that out is very, very important to us. Um, I mean, one of the things we've been playing with recently in terms of our mission or whatever you want to call it um, is the Creative Collective for the New Culture. Um, and it's just a way of thinking about, I'm really interested in this idea that this new culture is emerging and may be much more powerful and much more substantial than we think it is at the moment. So, um, you know, there's this idea that as values change, because the old values appear so dominant and you see them reflected in advertising and politics and all the rest of it, then you can feel overwhelmed and like, oh, we're a tiny minority, you know, people who believe in values like universalism and ecological balance and all the, all the rest of it. But actually, what if what we're seeing at the moment with Trump and, and you know, all the craziness that's out there is the kind of final lash of the tail rather than the beginning of something new. This is the old order clinging on because it recognizes that something fundamental is changing. Mm -hmm. And so for us, this new culture, you know, you can split it in lots of different ways. We talk about three things. We talk about compassion as a sort of organizing principle for humanity and, and, and ourselves. We talk about creativity as an antidote to consumerism, mindless scrolling on LinkedIn or Instagram. <laughs> uh, and we talk about connection to nature as a sort of radical alternative to the commodified, uh, you know, sedentary world that we live in. So it will mean lots of different things. Mm. But how do we take those three things and promote the hell out of them? Just like that's happening with, you know, um, with shoes and with all the rest of it. How can we use the same Instagram techniques? shopping? Instagram shopping. How can we make it as easy 
as pressing a button to go out into the forest. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I guess the point is, where do you start? And I think partly by bringing people together and and trying to broaden these groups and these communities that we're we're nurturing, but also to offer people really easy way in. So I don't think it needs to be much harder than, you know, running clubs I'm really interested in because, you know, 20 years ago, jogging was something your dad did in a sweatshirt and it was really unattractive and rubbish. And now Nike and Adidas running clubs, everyone's in Lycra. It's just so part of the mainstream but that's a kind of painful slightly unpleasant thing that mm. people now do because like well like yeah <laughs> um because everyone else is doing it and do you see what i mean i, I don't think there's anything innately in any of these behaviors mm. that would uh, put people off but imagine if gardening could be as popular in 10 years time as running is now yeah. amongst social influencers and yeah, people yeah. are you know talking about the incredible beauty of the salad that they've grown and yeah. we were talking about this on our walk earlier you know the amazing technology of nature and having that people nerding out on it and really celebrating it in the way that you celebrate a new apple phone or, or, or an i or an ipod or whatever mm. that i think could be part of this new emerging culture this just like We've got all the technology we need. Look at this amazing stuff that's outside. How do we make that feel as aspirational and as attractive as the much more insubstantial, shallow distractions that we have at the moment? Mm. And do you sense with, um, I guess it's one back to your community, but one thing I'm interested in is if we go back to the sort of commercial creative networks and communities that are working within you know the i don't want to say the machine but it's a bit machine-like world of you know creating and promoting brands and helping sell products and are you are you sensing that there's any shift within those worlds that people are starting to find there's more there's more meaning or there's more opportunity to do this kind of work or is it still very much you know you are an escape route um and i only ask because like you know when we were starting doing it for nothing you know there was it really was like you know it was like it was a bit like counseling our good for nothing i mean they were brilliant but people were just like therapy it was like chance to kind of just you know radically be different but i'm but i'm but i'm i'm guess i'm you know i'm, I'm you know it does feel like there is some shifts occurring in the kind of commercial world but do you sense people are still really limited in terms of being able to express themselves more meaningfully through commercial work? Or is there are there shifts at play, more shifts at play? I mean, I suppose if you look at the the people that are coming to us, mm. I certainly don't think those shifts are happening fast enough. Mm. Um, I think there is a pervading wisdom or a pervading sense of how you do things, which is still, well, obviously it's about maximizing profit and everything else falls by the wayside. So... I think things are slowly changing, but they tend to be happening with individuals or with smaller companies. I think larger companies find it very, very hard to change. Mm. But it's also not really my world. I've never worked in brands. We don't actually talk to many brands at Glimpse. Mm. We're almost entirely dealing with charities. And the interesting you know, thing, what we're finding is sort of charity refugees or orphans who come to us and say, you know, we find it really hard that there's so much sign off and it's so difficult to do things. And by the way, and you know, the key part of glimpse working is about being positive and you know imagining a world where we fix these problems and trying to help people understand and 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 imagine that 
that is so alien to how most charities work that that is something that's drawing a lot of people from that world as well. Mm. So I, I don't think the grass is totally greener on the charity side yeah. either. Yeah. Um, but the point is that both of those industries, if you like, are no longer fit for purpose, in my view. Yeah. You know, most of these big charities were set up 40 years ago when things were very, very different. I think brands and ad agencies were set up at a time where profit was unthinkingly embraced as the main purpose of any company. And that's crumbling. And I, it's a little bit like we used to say with Shell. Yeah, Shell can talk about its renewable energy investments, but actually it won't be the oil companies that deliver the fossil fuel future, sorry, the renewable energy future, because what they're really good at is sucking oil out of the ground and transporting it in tankers around the world. They're all engineers, they're all old white dudes, all the rest of it. It's, it's going to be smaller startups and challenger companies that create the solar future that we need. And it's a little bit like that with brands and agencies. I think, I, I mean, personally, I find it very hard to believe that any of them will be able to turn around that super tanker in time. It's sort of like the hospicing versus the midwifing thing again, isn't it? It's often the sort of thing. It's like you, you, you sort of, you know, you sense that a lot of these big organisations, like you say, it's like it's almost impossible for them to make the shift because the, the 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 sort of system that they're built on and the way they create and make and market and produce and all this kind of stuff. It's so it is a machine, and you know, if you really wanted to to make it purposeful you'd have to reinvent it and often that means well you're better off buying a startup or a, you know in the category or whatever yeah. and and therefore you're sort of like trying to sort of maximize you know the life of these things you know i mean that's a certain sense i get it's just like there's incremental shifts that happen i mean it's interesting because I, I i went and did a talk I, I went and did a talk in in istanbul last week which was a bit nuts at the sustainable brands conference and i ended up doing a talk really about which is mostly what i talk about at the moment because i don't really know what else to talk about is working from the heart and just talking about love and like you know not really knowing what else you know that, that actually that's the only sort of operating um, organ that I can trust more these days to work from because we don't know what's going on everything else but it, it, it struck me that there's um, you know there's you're either trying to just yeah incrementally shift um, you know just do slightly better things in these kinds of big big brands and how many companies are willing to take a hit to do better things and I was struck by you know, everyone's always talks about Patagonia. And of course, I love Patagonia. I always have loved Patagonia. But they are literally, you know, any any brand conversation or presentation is always, you know, they talk about a personal brand, they all talk about Patagonia. The, no, there's literally no one else gets talked about. It's and amazing how many people are saying, have you heard about Patagonia yeah. and what they're doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, and so, and it struck me. So there's a, there's a you know, there's a cafe chain down here in the Southwest that we've, that um, we've done some work with Good for Nothing. Amazing, you know, Boston Tea Party. And like, they're, you know, they're 20 cafes. Uh, I don't know what their turnover is. It's several million. It's a decent, it's a really lovely business. Um, and they, you know, they, they, they banned single-use coffee cups. You know, they made a stand and banned it. And they've just, you know, just shown they've, they're down like a quarter of a million quid, I think, on the first year and stuff, right? And... But they were, and that's massive for a small business, you know. But the owner, Sam, was prepared to take that hit because he's like, this is insane. Like, we're literally, we are filling landfill with these things, with these cups, you know, and and it has to stop. And so, 
and I'm interested in again I mean you know it's just jumping around a bit but I guess that's the thing like for me it's like it, that that for me is a purpose driven business because they're willing to take a hit because they're trying to think how do we lessen our impact on this on this living planet you know which without which we can't do business <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah um, and so I'm sort of interested in I mean I'm really interested in in those kind of more courageous moves I guess yeah well, one of the ideas that we you know we've been talking about a lot recently is ditching sustainability mm. as an idea and thinking sustainability by its very nature is sort of clinging on to what we've got right. desperately trying to delay the decline by another few years mm. whereas actually i think we need to be thinking more about renewal and regeneration and rewilding and you know and that's not just for conservation groups that's yeah. for companies yeah right not thinking how do i minimize the harm that we're doing but how do we maximize the benefit create life absolutely yeah. absolutely mm. and going back to your point about you know salad <laughs> it's the new game if you like is how do we create as much nature how do we heal social divisions how do we build buildings that suck up carbon from the atmosphere and i think that needs to be the shift mm. where people start thinking it's not good enough to be even zero emissions, we need to be net positive in yeah, whatever right. way that means. Yeah. It's not just in climate change. It's like, what are we giving back yeah, here? Right. Um, because this is, and, and going back to your point, I think companies need to, it's for the ones that will succeed, will have so much of a social mission that they'll somewhere be somewhere between a charity and a company. That, that whole concept yeah. of a company needs to be radically rethought, as does the concept of a charity. And I think we need more hybrid models. Mm. But that idea of, yeah, maximizing the benefit that you're doing to people and planet, I think is actually something that gives me a lot of hope and energy as I like, oh, we finally found a mission. Like, here's something that we can do meaningful as, right. as, as humanity. And if you think about the arrival of automation, you think about the great challenges that are going to happen to our workforce over the next 20 or 30 years. We need a new cause. We need a new thing to all get behind and believe in. And that feels like it's the beginnings of something that could be really exciting. Mm. That's nice. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, I think that's it's, it's exactly. I think that's exactly this the, the shift. It's to a, it's to a sort of a, a life a life giving way of of being in the world, versus this kind of like you know extractive and you know it's almost like yeah this idea of like let's stop minimizing our impacts and start sort of optimizing what we can actually what what can we give to the world through what we do. Um, it's an exciting time. So what's what's next for Glimpse? What's um what what should we be looking out for? And um what what's where where's your where's it all heading? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's lots of things. So the the most immediate things we're doing a project with the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which is funny actually. I was talking to the Glimpse New York team, and they were like, "What? <laughs> what? That is the most British sounding organisation? Yeah, it's an institution." <laughs> <laughs> It is quite silly when you yeah. see it from the outside, but uh, we are doing a, a fantastic project with them called Let Nature Sing, which is essentially this idea that how do we get people to think and perceive of nature in a slightly different way and doing a link with music. So thinking about birdsong is music and it has a similar kind of healing and, and restorative properties, um, and yet birdsong is falling silent in this country. Mm. Um, so linking up with lots of musicians, trying to do concerts, uh, talking about how music has been inspired by birdsong through the ages but the first idea is to launch a single of pure birdsong uh, which is actually on pre-release now it comes out on the 26th of april and the plan is to see if we can get that into the uk music charts and it's just birdsong there's not like 
a little bit of strings or anything. It's just bird song. And we so think what, what birds are in it? <laughs> now you're putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> so there's a vocal, the snipe, which well, sounds who's like who's on lead lead vocal. Sounds like an alien. I mean, the thing is, actually, when you listen to birds really amplified, they're quite weird. Yeah. I mean, they are quite odd yeah. sounds because they're essentially dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, and so it made me think more of Jurassic Park than my family and other animals, basically. Um, and, and the bittern has this incredibly rumbling low bass sound. And we're really hoping that some producers take some of these stems and, and remix them. Yeah. There's a lot of potential there. Um, for just, again, being playful and playing with, you know, nature wants us to engage with it, you know, if, if you want to look at it that way, to, to look at it in different ways to play around with it. So, yeah. so that's Let Nature Sing. And I think um, you know, we are continuing to work with organizations like the RSPB with Help Refugees, but wanting to do more of our own stuff. And we were talking a little bit more about this this morning, you know, how, what is the best place to put our energy and our efforts at the moment? Um, and how can we collaborate with the people and organizations that are pushing this new culture forward? Um, I think a big part of that for us is working with young people. And we really want to uh, do more to help, especially on the nature side, um, bring people from disadvantaged backgrounds and who don't have access to nature uh, into wild places and to find a way to make that not feel like a chore or not feel like something that's completely apart from the rest of your life, uh, but is something you can happily identify with. Um, and so working with some groups on that. Um, and then I think, you know, more stuff on consumerism is kind of linked to it, but we've always been very interested in unpicking this story um, and, and again, with young people, the primary message you get as a 17 year old is from big billboards from Adidas and Nike, and it's not from other sources. So whether that's, you know, bits of wisdom from other cultures or, or just kind of culture jamming that and finding ways to hijack it. Mm. Uh, that's what we're really keen to do. That sounds cool. Um, I will, um, put some links into that to the rspb stuff and just a, a quickly on a bird on a just a bird on a bird riff because <laughs> it's made me think i was with my uh, my good friend mark sears yesterday down in down in devon and he was telling me that um this time of year so that um when you know birds are about to lay their eggs right and they uh they actually have they will uh, they won't lay their eggs until the first full moon after the spring equinox which happens always to be Easter, and hence eggs. Yeah. And actually, that is why we celebrate eggs. Is like as foragers and hunter gatherers, apparently, you know, eggs would be part of our, our diet in this country. You know, long, long time ago, and birds will never lay their eggs until that point. So it's after the spring equinox. So the that's that when it's dark, day and night is is equal duration and the first full moon and then after that point all the laying starts so even with climate shifts and weather changes they won't start laying till then and i think that's the story of the egg mm. which happens to be around easter mm. that kind of blew my mind mm. i didn't know that is that where the easter egg hunt comes <laughs> i think so, i think so i think that's a, well i think the original yeah the original thing so it's, it's not you know that is there is a real connection to obviously obviously the, you know the birthing and the life and all that jazz but you know essentially that's the egg story for you it's all about the birds uh anyway so that sort of blew my mind birds generally i mean they are they are um i think it's great i hope i hope i hope i really hope that uh that kicks off that project because um 
Um, I once did this mashup called Bird Step, where I took a sort of a, 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 a dawn I've chorus. I've listened to it. Oh, yeah, a dawn chorus with a, with a sort of thumping drum bass um, sample. It didn't, you know, I think it got about 12 listens. But um, but that but is, anyway. the dawn, I mean, <laughs> actually, I mean, I have to give credit to my mum for this mm. idea because when we, were, <laughs> when we were sitting outside mm. early morning, she said, you know, the dawn chorus when I was growing up was really different to, to how it is now. It had more diversity. There were more birds. It was louder yeah. than it is now. Um, and so that immediately got my kind of campaign campaign brain whirring yeah. and thinking, save the dawn chorus. You know, this is a something that's very pertinent to uh, people in this country because the dawn chorus is not a phrase that's known outside of the UK, yeah. which is really interesting. And we have the best dawn chorus in the world, or at least we used to. Yeah. But there's something about that early morning period where you're sat on your own outside and the kind of arrogance and hard shell of being a human falls away and you feel vulnerable and, you know, like you're not the center of the universe. The birds are, or at least the, the wider natural world is. And I think that vulnerability is something we really need to, to take back. Um, and the interesting thing about the Dawn Chorus, and I suppose more broadly with nature, is that wherever you are in this country, and we're so deeply polarized, there's so many you know, viscerally held opinions. Everyone loves nature. Everyone would say they like nature. And there aren't many things like that, great unifiers that we can that we can hold on to right now. And I wonder whether or not that's an opportunity for some healing and for some togetherness to transcend who cares what you think about Brexit? You love birds. I love birds. Yeah. Let's go out and let's and go out and do the them. dawn chorus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I'm I'm a big fan of the dawn chorus, and I, I was like, sort of, yeah, I try and get up, uh, you know, really early and go and do the full, go and sit in, go and sit in the wood across the road, and, and actually try and, you know, get the start, get the first bird, soften the blackbird. But um, but I think it depends wherever you are. It shifts. Different birds uh, kick, kick, you know, someone kicks it off. There's always someone that goes a bit early than everyone else, um, but it's it's extraordinary. And a few times, the few times, I had a great, uh, real treat to work with this guy who actually works with the RSPB. Tony Whitehead is based down in Devon, and I did a whole dawn chorus experience with him, where he took us took us out, lit, you know, before dominant, still dark, and and then he basically, you know, he can literally he identifies everything. <laughs> so he's like. He's like, every time one started, he'd be going, well, that's, you know, that's the chaffinch and there's the this and the that. And it was absolutely brilliant. But, um, but and again, it's it's the same thing. Isn't it? Once you've tuned into it, oh, there's the cat. Uh, once you've tuned into it, once you've, once you've been, uh, you know, it's almost like um, you have these bridges, people that, are, that help you make these connections. And that's what I think a lot of this stuff's about, right? It's like we're in our worlds, our modern worlds. We've been born into these kind of crazy economic environments and you know brand-led busyness you know whatever it is all this stuff it's very difficult to tune into these things like birdsong for example if you haven't been shown it or do you know what i mean some for some of us i think particularly with kids it's like if you've if you've had that if someone has helped you make those connections once you've made them once you've experienced it it's there mm. and suddenly things shift and i think that's when the agency starts to shift you start to realise you're part of something bigger. Mm. There is more life going on. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. There are ways that I can tune into stuff that mm. aren't necessarily mean I have to be in front of a screen all the time or whatever mm. it is. So I, I'm with you. Let's let's you know. I think all the this you know just a mass movement of uh, dawn chorus participation. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
No, I think <laughs> I, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, a, a lot of this is about whether you've been lucky enough to have someone in your life yeah. who gives you that insight yeah. or gives you that moment. And what I'm really interested in is can we use creativity and communications and to plug my own thing to give yeah, people a glimpse of that, right? To say, you don't need to learn everything about birds, but what if we can just create one moment which jolts you out of the current reality and makes you look at things slightly differently? And if we can do that for brands, if we can do that with the power of social media, why can't we do it for nature? Why can't we do it for, you know, getting out there and listening to the dawn chorus? Why do these things have to be seen as stuffy and remote? Because they are the most exciting, the most appealing, the most attractive um, things that you could possibly perceive. And we just need to rebrand them to use a terrible word. Um, but that is that is the mission. That's what we're trying to do. I was just going to say on that, and uh, just to sort of wrap that up, because I was thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, you know, you know, looking at a billboard versus listening to Dawn Chorus, you know. But then I thought about this thing that, you know, it's about to happen as well, this, um, this, uh, the Sea is a Sky activation, which we've got this sort of little, little bit of a collaboration g going on. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the, actually the ultimate hack because that's, that's actually taking outdoor media and trying to use it in a way that helps us connect to this bigger element of life yeah absolutely Do you want to just just give a yeah just so a, just to explain the sea is the that. sky so we ran a hack day last year which you came to mm. thank you dan um where we looked at how to build connection with the oceans and how we could bring the oceans into urban life and make people make them feel more relevant uh, one of the ideas that came out of the groups was what if we created a billboard campaign where every time it rained um you could tell there was a billboard which told you which ocean that particular rain was coming from, uh, along with some lovely illustrations or animations of the creatures who live in that relevant ocean. Now, it turns out it's not scientifically very easy to do that. So um, the idea has continued. It's called The Sea is the Sky, which is a brilliant you know, bit of copywriting that the animations are beautiful. So do, do check them out. It turns out you can't say this came from the Arctic Ocean or it came from, but that's fine. We just fudged that mm. a little bit. Um, and it's launching next week across the UK. And what happened was... We're hoping for rain, by the way. We're hoping for rain, yeah. It launches on Monday, but if it doesn't <laughs> rain, it doesn't launch on Monday. Um, and uh, one of the you know individuals who was at that hack day applied for a competition uh, for an outdoor ad company, £100,000 worth of outdoor ad space. And now the thing's running for two weeks. And the impressions or whatever it's called is something like 4 million people are going to see this thing. So, um, yeah, like you say, it's kind of hijacking the tools of consumerism and commercial advertising for something really different. Mm -hmm. But that's the point. I don't think this is about hearing the dawn chorus or listening to billboards. I think from where we are now, we've got to hijack the billboards and put nature on them. Mm. We've had this idea recently of trying to present nature and clean air as a luxury product, um, like a Louis Vuitton handbag or a kind of expensive Tesla, and say, this is the best technology. It is the most beautiful. Um, you know, it is perfectly made. Therefore, it has massive value. And trying to recast nature as something incredibly valuable using some of those cliches and some of those tropes of luxury product advertising so that's something we're thinking about nice moment. love it um thank you james for having this conversation um it's um i think we could probably go on for hours but um we'll do another one down the line um but i just want to um i'll put all the you know links to your work in the show notes so people can follow up and 
and I guess people can get involved, right? So Glimpse is an open community, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, anyone who wants to get involved can visit our website, which is weglimpse.co. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we're open to all sorts of different people. We try and run hack days every quarter. Um, we've got a mailing list and all sorts of things like that. So trying to build the community aspect a lot more this year. So yeah, if you're interested, please do get involved. Nice. And then, um, so to finish, I always, I always ask this at the end of the, the session so that, you know, this podcast is in, inspired by the Spaceship Earth concept. And there's this, this phrase, there are, there are no passengers on, on Spaceship Earth. We're all crew. And um, I just want to, yeah, ask what does, what, does that, what does that say to you, that, that phrase? What does that mean to you? Um, it's, I mean, I, I'm really in sort of, or have always been very inspired by Earthrise, you know, the picture of the Earth from, from space. Mm-hmm. And I feel that what is needed right now more than anything else is that sense of planetary togetherness and sort of a, a collective myth that goes beyond nations and tribes and, and brings us all together. And I feel like it's out there waiting um, and it is the logical next phase in this crazy evolution that we're on. So yeah, who's going to write that myth and where's it going to come from? Nice. Thank you, mate. Um, yeah, it's been great to chat and uh, good luck with this year and the impending arrival as well. <laughs> Thanks very much. All right, James. Cheers. So that was the wonderful James Turner from Glimpse. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. Do check them out. There's a lot of cool stuff uh, going on with them. So check out the links in the show notes and follow up. Become part of the network um, and uh, see what you can do with uh, your energies and talents. It's kind of interesting moment right now. This is where we're sort of mid-May, and that conversation uh, with James was sort of probably four, four or five weeks ago now. Um, and uh, it's an interesting time um, for, I guess, creative responses to the challenges we're sort of facing as a species. And uh, in the Good for Nothing project, which is a, a, a project I've been a co-creator of for, for the last quite it's, it's ninth year now, and I think I've talked about this before in some other podcasts. Um, but we're currently running an experiment um, called Homeful, and I'll put links to this in the show note where we're trying to bring more creative talent around three particular issues. One is the climate um, action, uh, climate strike, student climate strike movement in the UK, and we're trying to help bring more. Um, creativity into that to support the work that they're doing one was around homelessness with um joshua coombs who's been a guest on this podcast and his do something for nothing movement and one was with jazahara and the worldwide tribe who's also been a guest on this podcast um and i'll link to it but we were in the middle of an experiment where we're inviting people to kind of support these initiatives through opening up their creativity their skills their energy their networks their contacts whatever because there's multiple ways um that more of us could be participating in the kind of shifts i think lots of us are looking for and maybe we've sort of always looked to our institutions to solve these things but i think increasingly we're realizing that um we need to be co-creating this future and uh so lots of stuff in parallel with that. There's the good for nothing, homeful stuff that's going on. And yeah, and I'll link to some of this if you're interested. Um, lots of ways to get involved in that. Going back into the kind of climate thing, I don't know if you, where you're listening, whatever, but in the UK now, like, you know, the government's declared a, a climate emergency a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, you know, um, 
and mainly on the back, I guess, of the school climate strikes and the um, Extinction Rebellion uh, movement, which has been really growing strong over the lot. Well, mainly since April, where it really um, got onto the streets of London and sort of locked London down for a couple of weeks. Um, and you know, after various meets and whatever, you know, the UK government have declared climate emergency. There's this whole kind of new language that's starting to um, land uh, into our culture around, you know, climate breakdown, climate emergency, ecological collapse, all all these kind of um, new ways of thinking about the crisis that we're in. And um, I actually wrote about and recorded something on uh, a, a sort of YouTube thing, actually, which I'd never really done before, but I put that out last week because it was sort of, really feeling i'm feeling and sensing a lot of people are asking about what can they can do more people are sort of thinking like you know i need, need to get involved with this and um so i wrote a little piece and uh, a little youtube um thought piece on um how we might build on the fridays for future movement from greta thunberg and can we imagine um you know friday uh, a, a day of uh, sort of mass planetary kind of um participation sort of reimagining uh, redesigning the world um based on what we can do as individuals or communities or businesses whatever and actually dedicating regular time to getting this moving faster because that's what it needs and that's what you do in an emergency right this emergency so you get on so yeah, written a little thing, it's a bit of a thought starter and a bit of a, probably a bit of a ramble, but you know, be curious if you're interested, check it out in the links below and um, yeah, would love your thoughts if it's, if it stimulates anything. I've no idea what next, but um, you know, yeah, it does feel like we're, we're approaching a kind of potentially this kind of threshold of what would be amazing with this kind of threshold of mass participation in, um, in co-creating solutions and ideas and and helping shift the stories that we kind of live by in our culture. Um, uh, I think it was Friday or maybe Saturday, um, Extinction Rebellion uh, released, uh, well, some letters were released via um, media outlets, including The Guardian uh, campaign and The Drum, which are kind of advertising trade uh, media publications. Um, a demand to the advertising branding industry to step up its game and start um, responding uh, responsibly with um, in light of a climate crisis, an ecological crisis, um, and made it very clear that, um, you know, that entire industry, which, um, you know, has enormous uh, power uh, to uh, to land the stories or um, by how we live in our culture, um, through all these ingenious uh, uh, channels and innovations that can put messages into our lives around how we should be living. Um, and in many ways, as I said in the letter, have kind of, you know, fueled the kind of um, the consumerist engine of which is very much at the heart of 21st century modern life um, and actually is, you know, obviously a contributor, a big contributor to, to um, the ecological crisis we're facing. Uh, and therefore, a, a call to action from that whole industry to um, to act now to actually play a part in transitioning um, to a different way of talking about our relationship to each other, to the world, to products, to things, to stuff, but also to accelerate the um, the telling of truth, as Extinction Rebellion put it, to use their means and their relationships with 
powerful businesses and brands to help people learn that very fast that this crisis is happening. It's happening right now. We're living in it. So really interesting times to see how to see how they what the response will be from 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 across that sector. And um, it's a sector that I still um, uh, have a foot in and um, and uh, networks and peers and um very interested to see see where that might uh how that's going to unfold um and it's funny well not funny but there was a thing um uh in my last consultancy with my uh buddies in the swarm partnership and actually we did a piece of work with part of the ad advertising industry in the uk with the dnad who, who are a sort of the awards body of the advertising communications industry but we did an experiment which was really about kick-starting a conversation around climate change within uh, within the advertising sector and why it was not something that was happening. This was in 2014 and um, we did this a bunch of interviews and brought a bunch of folks together and it was really fascinating. And what was what was really interesting, and I'll share the film and, and links to that project in the show notes as well because it's all connected to this. The project was called Break the Silence. It was about, you know, yeah, kickstarting, you know, breaking the silence on, on climate change and opening up the conversation within the commercial creative sectors. But what was interesting then at that time was at least the sense we're getting is again was that you know it's all we're all humans right we work in these organizations we're all humans um and most of the people in within the uh, the sector are very, were very aware of climate action and climate change and um ecological collapse and were really scared about it and yet but the culture the work culture did not allow these kind of conversations to take place almost just sort of you know not a conversation you would have with your client or your brand partner or whatever who's trying to sell more stuff you would just would not have that conversation about hmm maybe we shouldn't be selling more of this stuff and uh, have we thought about why we need this and these kind of things and that was 2014 but I'm you know we're now in 2019 you know it's pretty damn obvious we're we're well beyond our capacity um to sustain to, to sustain the natural world the natural world is collapsing around us um part of that is absolutely being driven by this like insatiable appetite for more uh more of everything more stuff yeah it's a really uncomfortable moment in time but where will this play out can we shift can we see a shift to a more responsible um consumption culture which will probably mean you know ultimately um a lot of a lot of um at the end to a lot of our consumption habits really if you're realistic about the kind of changes needed and what will be the role of creative communications and how will that whole sector help us shift our stories and um our perspectives of what it is to be alive and what's important and is there a world beyond consumerism i hope you think there is i mean you know this can't be the pinnacle of modern humanity being a consumer Let's hope not. Not about being a co-creator or a participant or a, you know, a giver of life or a lover or a citizen, as my friend John Alexander would say. Anyway, super interesting times because I've often thought before when we're on this kind of edge, we're on these edges of uncertainty, we're on these edges of what we understand and know. And that's scary in many ways. And in many ways, I think we're quite lost at the moment as a, as a culture and a society. But also the flip side of being lost and uncertain, having this kind of unknowing, if you like, means that there's a, a huge amount of creative possibility in that space of really leaning into that and seeing how we might evolve. Um, yes, so changing culture through stories there's a whole thing on that actually in a previous podcast episode i did with ella saltmarsh who's you know doing extraordinary work around these kind of 
shifts in narrative in our culture which which effectively are the things that drive change everywhere else whether that's political um technology all these kind of things are tend to be informed by the the stories we're telling ourselves in our culture so hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and it's opened you up to things um please do get involved in these projects you know um good for nothing glimpse extinction rebellion and there's tons of other things you know it's all about getting out there and um co-creating participating being the change all that great stuff we hear about this is it we're in that moment um so yeah if you like what you've been hearing on this podcast do share with others um do if you want to give it a review or a like particularly a review on apple Podcasts, that would be super grateful because it really helps um it helps make the podcast reach other people so yeah if you like what you're hearing give us a shout give us a rating give us a review massive gratitude for that and um yes until next time Take it easy out there. Remember, folks, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth. We're all crew. Until next time, peace and out. Mm-hmm.